is another one of those interesting episodes that I simultaneously feel like I have a lot to talk about, and I kind of don't. Um, I've, I've often felt, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but I often feel like I'm doing things in a different format when it comes to Babylon 5 stuff, without meaning to. And I think that's because of the nature of how they tend to do multiple plot lines at the same time, and kind of how each one tends to stand on its own for the most part, and deserves to be discussed in its own right. Like, for example, when I'm doing Voyager, I literally, I do my notes linearly. You know, as the episode progresses, my notes go down. When I do Babylon 5, when I'm in one particular plot arc, I make my notes up in this section. When it skips to the next section, I have a different section for notes about that arc. It's weird. Anywho, so if you're ever wondering why these notes don't really come out fully linearly, uh, that's why. So... I do like the tiny little tidbits of continuity in this episode. Uh, first of all, and the most important one, again, and this is this whole tiny little thing, is the fact that Delenn is not on the station right now, which is logical because she's off dealing with the Great Council because of the last episode, right? So again, you know, it's nice, tiny little tidbits. I've talked about this before, the idea of little uh, connecting points to help flesh out setting continuity. It's some good stuff. Um, I also like how... Uh, so, I don't have that much to talk about oh, God. with regards to the Lanier and Londo plot. But I do have one thing to talk about, and it's actually kind of important, at least to me. It's the same thing I talked about in the previous episode when it came to the presentation of Garibaldi and Sinclair and Ivanova. A.K.A. it doesn't really add anything, per se, but it doesn't feel like padding. It feels like filling. Because what we are seeing is the exact same thing from the alien perspective, rather than the... It's actually... I actually have a note here. It's basically humanizing them in an alien way, or alienizing them, if you prefer. In other words, it's making them feel more relatable, more believable, more down-to-earth, and helping to flesh out their characters just a little bit. And again, making them feel more like characters, because they're not dealing with some big plot. They're not dealing with some big crisis or some big, uh, you know terrible thing about some killer or some alien technology they're just it's just another day in the life for them and i really like that day in a life concept the slice of of the everyday is something that i feel more fic, works of fiction in general need to help add additional gravitas to the scenes that really are the big scenes and furthermore as i've said many many times to make it more believable i just really didn't turn off my phone i should do that real quick there we go that would be funny if I'm in the middle of this and all of a sudden... <laughs> I would be that jackass in the middle of the, the theater, apparently. Um, <clears throat> I don't have much else to add about that, except for two little things. First of all, I find it interesting how Londo, despite the fact that he's clearly bored out of his skull during the earlier section of their visit, nevertheless sticks with it. He doesn't try to excuse himself. He doesn't try to make up some lie. He doesn't try to distract himself. He's just like... Yes, fascinating, interesting. Oh, this is so fascinating. You know, he, he just, he just kind of lives with it. I find that interesting in its own right. And believe it or not, I feel like that is actually a character trait of Londo's. The ability to do something he himself either adamantly disagrees with or does not enjoy because he believes, for whatever reason, that he needs to. This will come up a lot more later. Those of you who have seen the show know what I mean. Uh, and it's a subtle, quiet way to inform that. I also really like the idea of Mimbari culture not enjoying lying, and yet being fully willing to lie 
to prevent someone else from lying. The way he says it is to save face, but what I heard is it is a great honor to lie to help someone else retain their honor. Now that makes a twisted sort of sense, but it also helps to inform how basically all of Mimbari culture exists, because in all sincerity, all of Mimbari culture could be said to tilt on the axis of that statement. I mean this sincerely. It is a great honor to do what is necessary to help someone else maintain their honor. So if they're doing something clandestine, you help them out. So when you do something clandestine, they'll help you out. And we have an entire group of people who all have a two different sides to them, the mask and the real them. Now, you could say this is true about every society ever, but it's kind of codified. It's actually a built-in part of Mimbari society. And we see many, many, many times how the mask and the self don't really coincide with each other. All The mask is all about the duties and the honor, and this is what must be of us, and this is what is expected of us, and this is our privilege, and this is our right, and this is our burden. And then the real self, well, that varies significantly, and we actually see quite a bit of significant variance when it comes to the way that the Membari uh, actually are underneath the masks, and I like that. But it also kind of helps to inform how the entire culture of the Membari is so rigid because they've never really had a point in time where the Membari have actually had internalized conflict. As a result of that, it is better to... It's, it's, it's basically a form of the turn, your, uh, turn the other cheek philosophy here. In other words... That's actually not quite there, but it, like I said, it's a variant of it. It's a variant of it. Because the idea here is, rather than trying to hurt someone who hurt you, or is hurting, it is better to try and help them. That is really what is being said here, just on a social level. On a, dare I say it, political level. And so that's, like I said, if you really think about it, it just fits the matrix of their society so well, that all of them have been so inclined to turn the other cheek for each other for God knows how long, although we do know how long, um, that, that, that they haven't had something I talked about last week in Deus Ex. There was a wonderful quote there, forgive me for not having it offhand, where uh, JC said to Helios that the constructive uh, competition of ideologies can lead to progress. I'm paraphrasing it. And what we have with the Mimbari is an absence of that. Everyone is willing to just not smile and nod and agree with everyone else in order to prevent everyone else from having to do anything other than smile and nod and agree with everyone else. It's self-perpetuating. Let's hope this doesn't get to the point where they actually finally stop smiling and nodding because that would lead to some horrible civil war between the castes and that would just be terrible. Um, so the next thing oh, I want to talk about is the uh, the killer subplot. Oh my god, I'm sorry, I've gotten so little sleep. The killer subplot is interesting to me because it's probably the least important of the plots of this episode, yet it's the one that will have continuity in the future. I'm not going to say how or why, but these the events of this killer plot will come forward more than once, in more than one way, in the future. And... Uh, and I, it's also generally presented as the threat plot. I've talked about the idea of the threat plot many, many times, especially over on Voyager. The idea of the A plot and the B plot, and how one of them, you know, there's the uh, A plot, which is usually the more concrete, character-focused, story-focused kind of a plot, and the B plot is usually the ship is in danger plot, or the station is in danger plot. And in this case, the B plot would clearly be the killer to, to fit that thing. You know, that's the danger. 
Nothing else in this episode actually presents any significant real uh, form of threat. However, I do want to give absolute props to this gentleman. I wrote down his name. Uh, where is it? I, I thought I wrote down his name. Mark Rolston. There it is. Mark Rolston plays the killer in this episode, and man, does he nail it. He is actually more subdued than most people will play that kind of a character. Most people, when they try to play someone who is crazy or insane or criminally insane, they play someone who is basically jump, bouncing off the walls, screaming, laughing, sinister, etc. I myself have done that kind of a role before, and I am not ashamed of that. But the way he plays it is a nice subversion of that. He is so wonderfully quiet, and he has a degree of subtlety and certainty to him, which every now and again is absolutely shattered by something that he himself wasn't prepared for. Like, no, wait, this can't be! No, no! And then he goes back to being his quiet, confident self. It's a wonderful portrayal. He does some really good work uh, over the years, and I just dropped my pen. Um, <laughs> he does some good work over the years in general. He does a great job with this here. Now, I know what you're expecting. You're expecting me to talk about the death of personality. Believe you me, I have a lengthy discussion to say about the death of personality. In fact, to be completely 100% honest, when I first started doing these show ruminations, and I was thinking about shows to do, um, the one of the very, very, very first things that occurred to me, before anything else, there was two things that occurred to me. One was the potential of Star Trek Voyager, a.k.a. The, the, the fact that the show could have been amazing and was merely good. And the second thing that occurred to me was the death of personality in Babylon 5. These were the two topics I wanted to talk about most, right at the top of the list. But I will not be talking about that today, because there's an epi another episode, uh, Passing Through Gethsemane, I want to say is the name of it. Uh, I may be pronouncing that wrong. Which is a much better episode to discuss the death of personality concept. And trust me, we're going to have a lot to talk about there. That may be a long episode. So... <clears throat> All I'm going to mention here is the deliberate parallels to a book uh, or another fictional work called uh, The Demolished Man, which is where the death of personality idea was inspired by. And, the, and JMS has openly admitted this and has given several nods to it, most notably including the, 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 the role of Alfred Bester, a.k.a. the author of that work. Um, so I want to mention here... Uh, that's so we're just gonna leave that be for a moment feel free to give your thoughts of course but like I said we're gonna really have that discussion later I do like Franklin and Garibaldi's exchange because we see their differing perspectives rather clearly keep in mind these two men are men who would generally be considered allies and yet Garibaldi would do anything in his power to kill this man if he could get away with it the, the killer I mean and he also feels like he's getting off easy by having the death of personality. The interesting thing about that, contrarily, is the fact that Franklin finds the entire process disgusting, which I find extremely interesting given the fact that this is probably one of the better ways to dole out punishment to someone in, in a less, for lack of a better word to use, icky manner. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about capital punishment later, because we do have something to discuss. I do have a Deutsch box today. Thanks, Deutsch. <laughs> um, but for now, let's go back to the uh, the killer plot. I only have a couple of other things to point out. For example, Garibaldi correctly deduces that this man has killed before. 
I only point that out to once again for like the 50th time. We're on, what, episode 21? And we've already had a bajillion times at which Garibaldi has demonstrated logical discourse in terms of his deductive reasoning. He looks at the method by which the man killed and deduces by his by the natural prowess with which he utilized it, by the practice precision of it, that this man has killed before. And he was right. I like that. I very much like the fact that Garibaldi was right on the money on that because it very is it, it very, is very much one of my favorite aspects of his character. It's the thoroughness that really gets to me. Too often in fiction, uh, detectives, policemen, lawmen, people who are trying to find stuff out, sleuthers, if you will, aren't thorough. They look at the surface of a situation and then they're like, yep, done. Garibaldi doesn't do that. He digs, and I like that, because that's what you should do, in my blunt opinion, if you are a sleuther, whatever your particular profession may be. You should dig to actually find out the core of the matter, rather than just the surface skimming. You know? You could have a carrot cake outside, and inside it's nothing but a bunch of dirt and worms, but you wouldn't know that if you just dipped your finger in the frosting, would you? I also really, really like how they do a, a fairly decent portrayal, actually, of how absolutely horrifying it is being inside the mind of a killer. I like that for many reasons. I like that because it is logical to me that being in the mind of someone that deranged and that screwed up and that violent and that horrible should be so adamantly different from everything else that you've sensed or felt or thought, and the very patterns of someone's brain like that probably function differently from everyone else's. Now, we've actually seen already in Babylon 5, in this particular setting, that different people who have different patterns of brains uh, are difficult to read, right? For example, when uh, Jakar was accidentally read, it was horrifying, not because he was some evil bastard, but because he was an alien, and that alien brains work differently. I have always felt that people who are simply that deranged, like the killer in this episode, you know, a mass murderer, those kind of people, I've always theorized in real life that those people's brains literally chemically, electrically, function differently than ours. And the idea of trying to go into a mind like that has got to be a terrifying concept, and I really like how they portrayed that in many ways, both with her her hesitance, her prepping, the scene where she's just staring in the mirror, great stuff. And then, of course, they actually go into the mind, and she just sees all those wonder, those those victims. And the idea that he has deliberately remembered the faces of all his victims is very much saying something. And then, of course, you know, her uh, after effect, the concept of, I have seen into alien minds, and yet I've still seen more humanity in them than in that person. It's all the expected stuff. In fact, I would go so far as to say it is cliché. Once again, pointing out, as I like to do, that clichés are not necessarily a bad thing. It is played very straight, it is played very to the point, and I like its presentation. Uh, trying really hard not to sneeze. Ah, Forgive me. Ah. The next thing I want to mention is really the A-plot, which has to do with Franklin and the healing of Dr. Rosen. First of all, there's an excellent back and forth between uh, Ivanova and Franklin. And I really like the portrayal of that, because the whole point of that exchange is that if you're doing something under, you know, under the table, that's acceptable if it's being done for the right reason, but you damn well better keep me in on the loop. I liked that a lot. I liked the idea that Ivanova's primary reason to be there was to scold him for not keeping her in on the loop, 
not for not for doing the, the the lab, but for that purpose. There's also a topic here that we'll be ta- discussing later when we get to the Deutsch box. Um, I really shouldn't call it that. Controversy box. We'll call it the controversy box. Um, I think that is actually what I called it. I don't remember. I threw I threw together a graphic for this forever ago. Anywho, um, I also, but I absolutely love the back and forth dialogue. Your job is to be the chief of staff. Blah 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 blah. And his response is, "No, my job is to is healing people." I really like that. That is so Dr. Franklin, and probably one of the uh, biggest flaws and things I like most about Dr. Franklin's character. He is so wonderfully naive and so passionately idealistic that to him it really is extremely simple. There's healing people, and that then there's everything else. And I like that. Um, it also is a great way to foreshadow his own uh, conflict and then partnership, if you will, with Dr. Rosen. The idea that, he, he, as it's mentioned later, his big opposition to her, his big opposition to her little sideshow thing, is the fact that he doesn't think it's genuine healing. And that's the only reason he cares. He doesn't want to hurt her. He doesn't want to take away her dreams or ambitions. He doesn't want to make her unhappy. What he wants is for people to be healed. The moment he finds out the thing actually works, he's on board with it. He wants to study it. He wants to learn more. He at no point in time wanted to hurt anybody involved. He just wanted to make sure that people didn't... Like he said, he, he's against the idea of people not seeking proper treatment. And that is a very logical thing to think. If I was to start selling snake oil, saying this cures dot, 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 you know, these five things, then those people, if they are sufficiently convinced to take that, will stop trying to seek proper medicine. And that's not relevant because of the fact that I need more money from them or the fact that I want, you know, excuse me, that Dr. Franklin will want more money from them or that he cares about them doing procedure or whatever. He just wants them to be healed. And in his mind, the only way for them to be healed is to go through the, the, uh, the care facilities, right? I mentioned that as well, furthermore, because of the fact that from his perspective, the... Everything that he does, he and he shows this so well. He's shown this in previous episodes, too. Everything he does is viewed as an obstacle to him healing people. That's all he's interested in, healing people. I'm going to heal. So I have to go through all this muck to heal. It's worth the aggravation to get to that end goal, but it is clear that he presents everything in the middle as just an aggravation. By the way, very nice little subtle touch here. Right at the beginning, they have that that little exchange where Ivanov says only it's only half a dozen and he frowns he says where are the rest of them it's it's another one of those things Babylon 5 does very well it's it's part of that little notes of continuity thing again because that's a form of foreshadowing that's not just some random joke like most other shows would toss out it's like oh there's only half a dozen <laughs> no that's actually a plot point because of the fact that other people have been going to the other facility and it's woven in rather naturally to the dialogue which is one of the reasons I like that kind of thing um, I, I just want to point out the fact that Dr. Franklin had a rather understandable uh, reaction when he heard about Dr. Rosen's stim addiction. And I imagine that's not a hard thing to understand. When you are passionate about something and you get to the point where you want to keep doing that and you're, you're basically physically incapable of doing it and you have access to that kind of medical technology that we don't really have here in real life, stims, in other words, aren't really the same as drugs. They're more like 
well, stimulants. They're basically this, the, exactly what they sound like. They're, they're better forms of the stimulants we have here in real life. The idea that they could just keep you going and keep you running and keep you functioning way past where you should be able to. And I know, I know, there's things like that in real life, but you get my point. The allure of that has to be understandable to someone who cares about what they do, especially someone like a doctor. I also love the fact that Dr. Rosen successfully convinces Franklin to just go ahead and let her keep working on it, with a few provisos. The biggest reason why I like that is because the argument she gives is one devoid of logic. She does not try to reason with him. She does not try to present her case. She passionately states that this is what she believes in and this is what she cares about and this is what matters to her and therefore she's going to do it this way. And it's the kind of thing that immediately made my, at the time, analytical brain, because I was in analysis mode, um, go, well, that's a terrible argument. And then, 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 you know, I started kicking in. I was like, oh, actually, that's a great argument. Because she's arguing to Dr. Franklin, someone who is actually very non-analytical, very non-logical when you really boil it down, which is funny in its own right. Dr. Franklin is a man who, as I think I've just illustrated, is very passionate, is much more about heart than he is about head. And making that kind of argument probably wouldn't work with certain other doctors, but it sure as hell would work with him. And I like that. Uh, so that actually slid in nicely. There's also one last note I want to mention about how she takes his life. This is going to segue into our next our, our controversy box section. She takes the life of the killer. She does so deliberately. She does so willfully. She does so in self-defense. I was grateful for the fact that they found her innocent of any charges. You know, no no charges uh, put because she was doing it fully in self-defense of herself and others against an escaped killer. Because in my blunt opinion, that's how that should work. But so that was a relief. And I actually like the guy they portray as the judge in this in previous episodes. He's a, he's a pretty good guy. Um, but the, way, the thing I want to talk about is that Garibaldi says you did the right thing. Because that's the way Garibaldi thinks. This man was a deranged, depraved killer who hurt and murdered many people. And he knows that. That's completely ignoring the personal connection he has to it, where one of his own people got killed by this guy. Multiple people killed by this man. You did the right thing. What did he say at the beginning of the episode? Space him. There's actually a comment about that. Only mutiny and treason are the only crimes that are punishable by spacing. For those of you who don't know what that means, that means kicking you out an airlock and letting space do the rest. A fairly horrible, unpleasant, painful death. Um, a fairly final death, actually. There's not many ways to escape that one. Which is, yeah. But yeah, mutiny and treason is the only thing reasons they could do that. They couldn't put that on him for this one, so... Uh, so Garibaldi's belief was that, that they had done the right thing. Not the correct thing. Not the accurate thing, not the necessary thing. The right thing. That this was how things should have happened. This man should have died. Keep that in mind for later. But notice her reaction to that when she is uh, confronted about that point later. She says, no, I did what was necessary which is not which is not the same thing as what is right what is right is always going to be determined by the individual that's why things like ethics and morality exist it's not a group consensus it's more like each individual person decides what they feel in terms of the specifics and if you were to put all the the graphs of everyone's morality and ethics around you would find several generalizations that tend to be found in the norm amongst a society 
but the odds of any of those two people's exact graphs being exactly the same when it comes to what is right and what is wrong is infinitesimal. I would argue it is a 0%, but I am willing to argue that there's at least two people out there who have the same concept of ethics morality based on simple random probability. Debatable heavily, I will admit. I mention this, though, because one of the things that was mentioned in this episode, and let's, let's go and just bring the box down. Go ahead, let's, let's just... There we go. Okay, hang on. Are we, we're good. Okay, okay. <clears throat> one of the things I want to mention here, now that we're in the box is an idea that is mentioned in passing in this episode. The idea that this device that she's using used to be used to kill people to help save others. Now, we've actually already talked about this concept a little bit, so I'm not going to rehash the entire discussion. The idea of, of consuming the dregs of society in order to uplift the others. We talked about this... Uh, Back in Deathwalker, I want to say it was the episode name. I can't remember exactly, but you know the one I'm talking about, I'm sure. I want to mention it here, though, because for some people, the, the, the real discussion I want to have here is actually that concept of right and wrong. Because for some people, that would not just be acceptable. That would not just be cold calculus. That would not just be necessary. It would be right. People like Garibaldi would look at that and say, yes, those horrible, depraved people deserve to not only die, and it is a good thing that they die, but it is a good thing that their death causes some positivity in order to balance out uh, the situation. Now, that's actually kind of... Actually, I take that back. I take that back. Garibaldi is not someone who thinks that way. I actually forgot a couple of statements he makes later. He's a lot more linear than that, and I'll get to that discussion later. But there are people out there who would think that is the right thing, is the point I was trying to make. There are people out there who believe that is right. You have caused harm. You will do good by literally draining your life essence out to help heal others. Okay. Now... Just like last time when we brought this up with regards to the vaccine that requires the life of others, this brings us to an interesting little topic, and it boils down to this. At what point have you gone too far? We'll actually be talking about it this, this Friday when we get to the human revolution uh, rumination. The idea on the base of it doesn't really seem that horrible. Take the horrible people of society, take the mass murderers and the rapists and all the other terrible, disgusting, depraved individuals who don't deserve to exist and suck the life out of them, literally, in order to heal others. And to some people, that would seem like a no-brainer. To some people, that would seem like the most logical, duh, like there's not even a question there. Of course do that. The real problem comes from how do you regulate that? How do you present, prevent that from getting worse? You remember Dragon Age Origins? Maybe you don't. In Dragon Age Origins, there was a device they made that would basically kill a person, basically kill a person, in order to turn them into a golem, an automated doom machine. It's not automated. They still have their sense of self and whatnot, but they can be controlled while they are a golem. So they no longer have the ability to disobey orders, and they last very long, and they're very strong, and blah, blah, blah. Now, again, when that technology was first developed against the Darkspawn, that probably seemed like a duh. Yes, people, people lined up. People volunteered to be able to join that thing and to, to, to sa sacrifice their lives to become a golem in order to became, in order to save their people and to fight against the Darkspawn. Again, it's just such a duh question. It only became questionable when they started taking it too far. 
this is one of the big things. This, if, if I have one philosophy in life, I actually have like seven thousand. But if one that one tends to touch most of my philosophies equally, it is the concept that all things in moderation. If you take anything to an extreme, usually what you have is a bad thing. My favorite examples of this are air and water. It is possible for too much oxygen to be in your blood to kill you. It is possible for you to drown to death. I don't mean being underwater. I mean if you drink too much water, you will literally drown yourself to death. It is actually very, very difficult to accomplish, but it's still possible. If you drink too much water regardless of drowning, you will still seriously damage your body in doing so. Too much of virtually anything, in my opinion, is a bad thing. And this applies to philosophies and ideologies just as it does more mundane physical realities so sure we can kill someone to save someone a life for a life okay where do you cut the line on that one where do you define the edge of reasonability on that more important question how do you enforce that how do you prevent criminal elements from getting a hold of this device how do you prevent others from you misusing it for their own ends how do you ensure that the entire system, which is even if you, it is using it within your limits, how do you ensure the own people within your own system are not corrupt, are not abusing it, are not uncaring, are not irrelevant of due process? Even ignoring the idea of criminal elements trying to, for example, bribe you know, policemen or detective or judges in order to have certain people have their life sucked out of them, even ignoring that possibility, how easy is it to imagine someone who's just doing their job, who just cares about a paycheck, and is just having a really bad day, and they don't feel like doing the full investigation on this guy, so they're just going to go ahead and look at the surface of the issue. You know, that cream on the top of that cake of mud and worms. And they're going to say, yeah, it's carrot cake. And now someone has lost their life who was innocent. It's not hard to imagine that, is it? And the worst part is that scenario I just listed isn't really about corruption or criminal elements or abuse or misuse. It's not even getting to extremes yet. That's like halfway to extreme. Now imagine how bad it would be if it really got to extreme. Imagine how bad it would be if, some, if, an if, a, if a government under the control of someone like Stalin or Hitler had a device like that. How do you think that would work out? Because when we actually get to extremes, it gets much worse. I will, however, say that this feels like one of those no-answer questions. Because what else do you do? What else do you do to people? And this is the other side of the argument. What else do you do to people who are actually that horrible and depraved? Let's take the killer in this episode, for instance. He was clearly guilty. Obviously guilty. Blatantly guilty. It was almost too easy because he was so obviously a terrible, depraved, horrible person who you know, deserved punishment of some form or another. So what do you do with him? Now that you have someone who is actually guilty, what do you do? You don't want to, you know, you don't want to suck his life out to help someone else. What, what are your other options available? And they actually go down the list in this episode of the things that are legally available to them. In fact, he makes a point. There's a line about how taking a life uh, who has taken other does not add to society. It's subtraction or something like that. I forget the exact phrasing of it. It was an interesting uh, line, and it shows where the legality of EarthGov has actually gone. The Earth, the Earth uh, Force Alliance. And... I also really liked the the other options that were given. Life imprisonment, which was just deemed incredibly infeasible for many reasons, not the least of which being monetarily. And mur uh, killing him, which wasn't even on the table, as I just mentioned. 
and uh, what was the other? Oh, spacing. Yes, spacing was was the third option that was being discussed, which again wasn't even on the table because of how severe of a punishment that is considered. The only remaining option, the one that was considered the the most acceptable option, was wiping his brain. <laughs> But again, we'll talk this. We'll we'll kind of pick this discussion up again in the future because a lot of these points I just brought up will be relevant there as well. <sighs> Unfortunately, we're not done with the controversy box. Sorry, guys. I actually will be bringing up this topic as well when we get to an episode of Voyager. Uh, I don't remember the name of it. It's the free. It's the clinic episode where the doctor is kidnapped and put on a planet where he's in charge of medical resources and whatnot. That episode actually tries to discuss the topic that is mentioned in literally in passing in this episode. Franklin and Ivanova have a brief discussion about something that is actually one of the more complicated, controversial topics I've heard lately. And this applies very much in real life, too. This is why this belongs in the controversy box. Free clinics. Free health care. I shouldn't even have to explain to my United States viewers why that's such a big hot-button topic, especially right now, and has been for years. Right now, here in the United States, historically speaking, for any of you watching this in the future, we have a law that is currently in place that several people are in hopes will be removed, that if you don't pay for health care, uh, excuse me, if you don't pay for insurance, you will be fined for not paying for it. Now, if that, doesn't, if that doesn't sound weird, let me point out that the whole reason that law was put into place was to provide better health care availability for people who couldn't afford it. I feel like there's a little bit of a disconnect there between those two points. But, in reality land, we have to acknowledge that free clinics are not the answer. Especially in a pre-scarcity society, which most societies are. Because resources are limited. Because medicine is limited. Because manufacturing ability is limited. Even if you, know, even if you have enough resources to make enough medicine, it's not like you can go out into the field and pick a flower and say, here, have some medicine. No, that thing has to be processed. It has to be constructed. It has to be analyzed. It has to be uh, quality tested to make sure it actually comes out and is in the right dosage enough parts per million to be exactly what it needs to be, combined with other medicines in order to have the exact effect it needs to have. That takes time and effort. Even if, you, even if the raw materials necessary to make enough medicine exist, constructing that into medicine is a big hassle, a gigantic hassle. And then you have to get that into actual distribution, which is another gigantic hassle of transportation, of... of uh, uh, I forget the actual term for that... Um, I can't remember the term for that. We'll just call it distribution again, because that, that fits as well. You know, the idea of the transiting it to places which can then somehow get it to people who actually need it, and then it, it's this web of mess to actually make that work. Now, there is an industry in place to make that work, and that industry is expensive. We've got, and I've just listed several parts, haven't I? We've got the harvesting of the resources necessary to craft the medicine. We've got the synthesizing of the medicine itself. We've got the construction of the medicine itself. We've got the, shall we say, packaging of it. Then the transporting, and then the distributing. And by the way, as an addendum to distributing is the diagnosing and prescribing side of things, which I haven't even covered yet. But that's also a significant problem because you can't just give medicine out. There's no such thing as the snake oil cure-all. We don't have an alien device that just heals you. 
by giving you my life. Instead, we have to figure out, well, okay, you've got these symptoms, so we're going to try and determine exactly what you've got based on those symptoms. And even in Babylon 5 setting, they do not have perfect diagnosis abilities like, say, Star Trek does. They don't have a tricorder, which can just immediately say, oh, you're sick with this. Now, they do have some things at their disposal, and they're certainly better at it than we are here in real life, but we face the same problem they do, a.k.a. we still need someone to diagnose you. We still need someone to analyze you. We still need someone to figure out exactly what's wrong with you. And then, and this is kind of another step, figure out what to do about that. Because we may not have a medicine for your exact condition, or we have, may have medicine that has been recently developed to deal with your condition that doesn't actually deal with it, that may change it, or may try to keep the symptoms back without actually attacking the source, and so forth, and so on. Medical technology, for all its many, many advances, is, in my blunt opinion, still incredibly primitive here in real life. And, the, and that whole problem of the massive amount of time and resources and effort that is put into something as incredibly simple as handling, handing you a bottle of pills, the correct bottle of pills, is mon it's monumental, it's mind-boggling. So how do you do free clinics? Well, Dr. Franklin already kind of said flat out how he does free clinics. He himself is a very skilled doctor, an extremely skilled doctor. So he kind of handles the diagnosis and the uh, the prescribing side of things, along with the, the people who are volunteering to help him, who also have medical knowledge and skill. Okay, valid. So he's handled that. There's already an immediate problem because now he's doing that in addition to his regular full-time job. That's pretty much destroying his personal life and, and it's going to be destroying his sanity and health over time if he keeps that up. So that's not a good solution. It is simply an answer to a problem. Next problem, the supplies themselves, the actual medicines and resources. Well, that's kind, part of that is kind of already handled because there are regular shipments of, of medicine that are sent to a space station like Babylon 5 in order to make sure that they can supply for people. Those shipments are paid for by taxes. Because again, this is a pre-scarcity society. So those taxes are going to make sure those medicines and those supplies and those all the assets and resources and the diagnostic equipment and the actual the, everything that they actually use, the actual operating equipment, all of that is being paid for by the taxes of the people who are paying for the station itself, by which I mean they are paying for the paid service up there. They're helping to keep that going. And the paid service's own expenses are then kind of cycled back into the system because, as he points out, medical service isn't free. In fact, it's actually pretty pricey. And a lot of people don't have the money to pay for that. Okay? So income is happening in order to make all of those supplies happen. So he is, and let's just put it how it is, stealing those resources in order to give them away for free, a more or less literal Robin Hood variant, where he is actively taking away from things that other people are paying for in order to give them for, to people who can't afford to pay for them. Now, there are people out there who'd be okay with that. There is such a thing as donations and charity. There is such a thing as I'm willing to give rather than to pay for. The key distinction being I give and expect nothing versus I pay for and get something in return. But how many people in the world do you think are more than willing to fund the kind of monumental cost it takes in order to affect the concept of free clinics in the world. 
Now, there are probably quite a few people. And there are probably some of those people who actually have the kind of money to really do something about that. But wide scale? Large term? Long term? Wide scale? Long term and wide scale is what I'm trying to say here. That's expensive. Medical industry is a multi, multi billion dollar industry. It's a lot of money. And the way an industry like that functions is it flows. The money kind of cycles through it continuously. That's how the very concept of an economy works. An economy is the flow of money, not the stagnation of money. And the currency continually flowing through the system keeps the pieces moving. Imagine an engine where suddenly the pieces simply stop flowing, stop moving, stop functioning. And you can understand why economies can collapse. It's actually quite easy to understand, really. With the anal I've actually used that analogy I just used to explain to people how economies collapse. Take this one piston in an engine, stop it from moving. What happens to the rest of the engine? My point is, a free clinic, and I, 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 I want to stress for a moment that I'm not giving away any of my own political thoughts or ideals on this. Even though we're in the controversy box, I usually keep my own opinions to myself. You want to ask me about that? You can ask me on Halloween. I am just analyzing and discussing the fact that this is not an easy solution. It's not just the ability to just say, why don't you just give away free health care? Why don't you just give away free medicine? It's not that simple, and it's not that easy. Not in the society we have, not in a pre-scarcity society of any kind, including the one on Babylon 5. Doing what Dr. Franklin is doing is frankly small scale, but it is symptomatic of a much, much bigger problem. All of that resources, all of that currency is being bled off, which means one of the pieces of the machine is no longer flowing into the rest of the pieces of the machine, of the economy, of the industry, of medicine and diagnosis and all that, you know, the medical industry. And that causes issues, and the more of that that's happening, the bigger those issues are. We've actually seen in real life times where, because of something like that, that money has bled off so severely and so starkly that it has actually caused a crash of, of you know, a minor crash, like a localized crash of a, of a particular uh, section of a medical industry. Program. That's happened already. Now, there are other answers to this, but no matter how you look at it, money, uh, it's not even about money, really. It's about resources. Resources have to be bled off, given without returning and in, in receiving in return, in order to make this kind of concept happen. It's the only way. It's the only way. Until we have a post-scarcity society in which we have limitless resources, we need to allocate. But again, I'll save most of that discussion for when we get to the allocator episode over in Voyager. Oh, sorry for yakking your guys' ear off. Well, no, I'm not. I love doing this job. <laughs> uh I expect I'll get a few interesting comments on this one. I got a lot of interesting comments on the religion and the belief, the faith episode we did, too. Uh, regardless, thank you as ever for joining me, and I will see you next time.